Well, as Mark said, my name is Johnny Artavanis. I'm the teacher at the Newhall Bible Study. We meet on Thursdays as well. We'll start meeting again this Thursday, and I was going to start teaching through Ruth, but I think I'm going to switch over to the Stevenson Ranch Study uh, for two reasons, the food, but then secondly, uh, I saw my wife walk past me when we got in here today, and she said, I'm not sitting with you, I'm sitting with your friends. So I think we need conflict resolution. Uh, There's something going on there. Um, Well, if you would grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 21, I want to at least start there this morning to provide us with some context of where we'll go after that. 1 Samuel 21.10. David is running for his life. He's been anointed king. And then if you follow the timeline appropriately, you'll understand that David is on the run from King Saul not for one year or two years or three or four, but likely for a decade of his life, he's hiding in caves and living in the rock. And it's no wonder then that David's most common name for God in the Psalms is my rock. When David has nowhere else to turn, the Lord is his rock, his refuge, his protector, and his home. 1 Samuel 21, 10, David is fleeing from Saul. And it says, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands, and scribbled on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? David fakes insanity and lunacy to preserve his own life. He salivates and spits and scratches and drools down his beard in order to demonstrate to Achish that he is not a threat. He's just an insane man. Then look at the first verse of chapter 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down to there. They went there to him. Verse two: Everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there was about four hundred men with him. Now turn with me to Psalm thirty-four. The description in Psalm 34 reads, A psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. It's against the backdrop of what we just read, that David will write the psalm that we're about to study together and explore its main themes. In this psalm, there are enemies, there are troubles, there are distresses and difficulties, fears and discomforts. But in the midst of all of it, the psalmist is going to exhort us to praise and bless the Lord at all times. 
David wants to make much of the Lord because he has had an experience from the point of view of others is full of fear, but he has a perspective that encourages him and draws him to magnify God, and he is going to encourage others to do the same. One thing to note is that this psalm is written in acrostic form where each verse begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This was something that they implemented. It's the second psalm in this regard. It's something that they implemented to make it easy to memorize and consequently something easy to meditate upon. We're going to look at this psalm in three main themes or scenes, if you will, not necessarily going through the flow as it would read, but I want to explore the three themes that are within the psalm. And first, I want to look with you at the experience of God's goodness in verses 4 through 8, the experience of God's goodness. David says, I sought the Lord... And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David is going to confess the goodness of God in the context of fears, and then he's going to do it in the context of troubles in verse 6. David is not merely affirming the doctrine of God's goodness. He has tasted the reality of it. It's not a foreign subject to him. He's not borrowing from the experience of other people. We do that, don't we? We sometimes live vicariously through the vacations people take, the homes that they live in, the pictures they have. But David is not suggesting that God is good in a vacuum, nor is he merely borrowing the doctrine. He is reconciling in his own heart that this is his personal testimony. And if you've tasted God's goodness, this is your personal testimony. David says, in the midst of my despair and the darkness of the valley, God has heard my cry. David believed in fear. One of the things that I love about the psalm is that they are articulation of Christian experience. There's no such thing as a stoic denial of emotion in the psalms. There are people that are pouring out their hearts to God, saying, where are you, Lord? They're very transparent. They're very candid. Yet David in the psalms never suppresses fear. It was a part of his everyday life. But David is always going to lead us to understand that fear never gets the last word. God does. There was one greater than David's fear, and David knew that trust in God doesn't eliminate fear altogether, but it enables us to encounter our fear in a way that leads to peace. Verse 5, David says, They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. They looked to him and were radiant. There is something different about the countenance of those who can walk in the midst of affliction, persecution, trouble, and distress knowing that God is in complete control. The irony here is that when the world is falling apart, God lifts up the countenance of his children. Those who look to God and see that God's face is directed towards them in love amidst their distress, have a countenance of radiance. If anyone could have looked to himself in the midst of trouble, it would have been David. He's a warrior. He's smart. He's an intellectual But David doesn't run first to his own resources, strength, and companions. He turns first and foremost to the Lord. And David says, I turned to the Lord, and he blessed me. And because of it, my countenance changed. My soul was elevated. Regardless of the moment, David says, my hope, my peace, my security, my stability is fixed on my shepherd. David says in verse 6, this poor man cried, And the Lord delivered him, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. David has been alone for 
almost 10 years. Have you ever felt alone or isolated? You can find a home in the Psalms. And David's going to use this word cry over and over again in the Psalms, and he's going to use it multiple times in this very Psalm. Because David isn't saying that the type of prayer that God hears is when we wax eloquently and perfectly articulate, oh Lord, our Lord, and, and knowing how to pray and posture yourself before God. David reduces the content of his prayer to a cry. You can cry. You don't have to go to seminary to learn to cry. And David says, thankfully, and the Lord has heard my cry. Is it not precious to you that any single time a child lifts up their voice to their heavenly father, the Lord hears their cry? Biblical, biblically speaking, great prayers are not eloquent prayers, nor are they long prayers. Biblically speaking, some of the most important prayers are simple cries to a God who hears. David says in verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. David is acknowledging that God is personally invested in protecting his people and himself from the forces of darkness. And you may be unaware of the providential deliverances in your life, but the psalmist knows I would not be alive today. I would not be where I am today apart from the intervening grace of God. And he is the one who has delivered me. And he says, he, the angel of the Lord rescues them. Now, I want to camp for a moment in verse eight as it is, David is going to come to a, let there be sound. It was a trial. We passed. Okay. David is going to come to a high point in verse 8 that is likely familiar to you. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you believe that God is good? Talk to me. Do you believe that God is good? Then the questions we need to ask ourselves is, can you reflect on the work that he has done for you in Christ? His goodness in blotting out your sin and adopting you as his child, where your sin abounded, God's grace abounded all of the more. Can you not only reflect on that, but can you recall the tracings of providence in your life leading you up into where you're at now? Is it an accident that you're here today? Can you remind yourself that his goodness, I want you to think about this, has never been prompted by a single thing you've ever done and that he loves you with an omniscient knowledge of you, meaning that God's love for you has never been disillusioned by something you've postured and presented to him. He knows you through and through before a word is on your tongue. He knows it completely and yet everything you hide from other people that cannot be hidden to God, he loves you all of the same in Christ. And so we can reflect on the truth of the scripture and know that his goodness is real. We have many faults, he has forgiven them. We have many wounds, he has healed them. And we have constantly wondered, all of us like sheep have gone astray and he has brought us back to him. Maybe we affirm these realities doctrinally that God is good. But the psalmist is after something else entirely. He does not say to agree and affirm that God is good. He says to what? Taste and to see. This is the language of experience. 
you cannot know God's goodness in the biblical sense unless you have tasted his goodness. And this cannot happen to those who are not yet saved. Only those who have been reborn have regenerated taste buds for Christ. Dead men cannot taste the food of the living. You cannot vicariously eat a meal for me and neither I for you. So how does this happen in our life? How do we taste that God is good? Well, faith is the soul's eye that sees that God is good. And faith is the soul's palate that tastes that God is good. I've become increasingly interested in this idea. And I was reading Martin Luther and he says this, And this I call tasting, when I do with my very heart believe that Christ has given himself unto me and that I have my full interest in him, that he beareth and answereth for all of my sins, all of my transgressions and all of my harms, and that his life is my life. Now watch this. When this persuasion is thoroughly settled in my heart, it yieldeth wonderful and incredibly good taste. Edward says this. It consists in a sense of the heart of the supreme beauty and sweetness of the holiness or moral perfection of divine things. Truth is experiential. It is possible, though, to spectrum swing, or to put it in other terms, to swing from one side of the other of the pendulum. And I want to talk about this for a moment. It is possible to respond to culture's overemphasis on the love of God at the expense of his other attributes by diminishing his love and promoting improportionately his other attributes. Maybe this is the tendency of my own heart to see a billboard that says God loves you or to walk into a secret sensitive church and they say God loves you and then for me to go, yeah, but he's holy. Maybe you sing songs that go, oh, his love is reckless. And then you go, no, 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 it's not. God's love this. And we begin to respond, maybe this is just me, by watching culture, especially church culture, overemphasize one doctrine that is true about God. And we respond by flipping over on the other side and putting a stake in the ground. Over time, we can begin to confess his love We can confirm his love. We can sing about his love. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me and yet lose sight of its taste in our heart? It is also possible to respond to church culture's overemphasis of experience at the disregard of truth by failing to appropriately declare that knowing God is, And knowing his precious truth is indeed experiential. And when we strip that away from truth, we've robbed truth of its intended meaning. After college, I went with two of my best friends to Australia. I finished college early. I studied accounting and finance. And I was going to do a semester overseas for my final semester. And it didn't work out. And I ended up getting my work holiday visa and going to Australia. And I showed up, we had our work holiday visas, and we were just knocking every door, just saying, hey, I'm Johnny, I'm looking to work. And I got a job in an acai smoothie shack on the beach, on the Gold Coast. Coast. And, you know, it's when I became terrified of sharks. And I just want you to know, every time you swim in the ocean, you're you're risking your life. So um, I remember going to some churches in Australia, and I remember one guy kind of coming up and saying, 
you know, what you guys need to do is you need to go up on the mountain and find your inner lion. And I was like, my inner lion? Okay, everyone has an Aslan. You know, so I was like, okay, I'm going to go up. And he says, you need to find your inner shout. And then he related to us that we're all living in some sort of a spiritual fog until we have a secondary experience that breaks through the fog and ushers us into a deeper communion with God. My experience in Australia is not far from much teaching in many churches today. Come experience God. We'll turn the lights down low and we'll crank the music up high. And it's possible to respond to this overemphasis on experience by just saying truth, truth, truth. We would do well in committing our lives to the truth of God's word. Amen? But biblical truth is never the end. It is always, always a means to the end. And the end is knowing God intimately and personally. And of course, we can't know God apart from his truth. But knowing the person of Jesus Christ in his word, through his spirit, is our aim. This is Paul's prayer, right, for the Ephesians church, Ephesian church in Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all of the fullness of God. Verse 19 says that there is a knowledge that surpasses knowledge. What does he mean by that? He says, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. This means that we come to the point and position in our own life that his love is real. It's been sensed in our heart and it's been appreciated and tasted in our soul. We may all agree that there is indeed a difference even in the scripture between an intellectual understanding and a spiritual understanding. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you know what the natural man can do? Say that God is good. Do you know what the natural man cannot do? Taste and see that God is good. This is what Jonathan Edwards talks about in Religious Affections. Understanding in your mind is different than the sense of the heart that is cultivated when one relishes and feels the impact of the truth that they have received in their heart. As with Samson's lion, it is possible to have sweet honey inside of a dead carcass. And it is possible to have the information of the gospel inside of a dead heart. So the question is, have you tasted the goodness of God? You could have your PhD in food science, understanding the complexity of every single gram. Yet if you have not tasted for yourself, you will starve and you will die. Conversely, you may not know the macronutrients of a meal, but if you have tasted that meal, although you are ignorant of its ingredients you know that it is good. And if you've tasted that the Lord is good, can you say amen? And if you've tasted, you have not consumed the full meal. It says you have tasted, meaning that you want more. Nobody who has tasted the goodness of God is content with the meal that they have had. They want 
more. And one of the surest evidences in your life that you have tasted of God's goodness is that you desire more of God's goodness in your soul. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst because those that truly hunger and thirst are those who have tasted. If you reflect on the times where you have maybe tasted most clearly the goodness of God, is it possible that it has been after a time of drinking from the cup of difficulty and distress and trial? We often drink from the cup of tribulation before we have a renewed and deepened sense of the goodness of God. In Hebrew, the words taste and see are imperatives. So the psalmist bids us to test and recount to evaluate God's goodness in our own life. So how do we taste that God is good? Well, we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. I'm not looking for anything original to me. I'm trying to just impress upon our own hearts what we already know. How do we taste that God is good? Through his word, through prayer, and through his people. We taste that God is good when we take his precious word and ask God that he would impress its truth upon our hearts and that we would have a deepened sense of its beauty, its reality, and its truth in our life. This is First Peter 2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Do you know the next verse? If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, stunted spiritual nourishment always results in spiritual stunted spiritual growth. You want to know why you're not growing? The Bible's very clear. You want to grow? The Bible's very clear. Crave the pure milk of the word and ask God that as you read and as you study that you would not just know the truth or the facts or the information, but so that you would taste the goodness of a person, Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer for the Colossian church in Colossians 1.9. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we have, first of all, the experience of God's goodness. But secondly, I want to look with you at the expression of God's goodness, the expression. And we're going to circle back to verses 1 through 3 and then look at a select other verses. When I was 16, my dad woke me up early in the morning on my birthday and um, some of you know the story. He told me to get my suit on. I didn't have a suit, so I, I think I borrowed one. And uh, he dropped me off on the old road at Stevenson Ranch, way at the top, kind of like by the Chuck E. Cheese, if you know where that is, TBT. Um, and he told me, Johnny, uh, I said, what's going on? I thought he was taking me somewhere, like a special surprise. And he, it was 6.30 or something. He just said, Johnny, happy birthday. Men work. Go find a job. Don't come home till you have one. And I was like, I um, I said, what? Um, I applied at 121 places that day, and I didn't get hired by any of them, including Magic Mountain, which I, at that point, I just thought Magic Mountain was handing out jobs, but they wouldn't even take me. I got a job the next day because my older brother and my older sister were working at a restaurant in Canyon Country, and they found out there were more of us in the quiver of Art of Anises. And... Um, the next day, I started working at a restaurant, and for the next six, seven years, even when I started working after college, I kept my night shifts at the restaurant because I enjoyed the interaction with people that didn't know the Lord. Um, and I loved the restaurant industry. I thought it was interesting. I thought maybe one day down the line, 
I'd love to have a little restaurant. And if you know anything about restaurants, 60% of them fail in the first year. And many new restaurants know this, and they go into their new endeavor thinking that their menu, their aesthetic, and their marketing strategy will be able to help them be the 10% that last after the fifth year. They might have a, grow, a great social media campaign to get bottoms in the booths, but there is one strategy of marketing that has worked for thousands of years and is still the most effective. You know what it's called? Word of mouth marketing. People who've liked what they've tasted, share it. There has never been, there's never been a meal that has changed your life that you've kept to yourself. Have you been to Fiesta Taco? It's amazing. (laughs) Have you been to Siam Rice? Got to get the pad thai. Anything that you've truly enjoyed, you do not privatize. And David is saying that those who like what they have tasted cannot help but declare the goodness of God to those around him. Look back with me at verse 1. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David says, I am resolved. I am determined because of God's goodness. He rightfully so places a monopoly on my praise. Regardless of the situation, the circumstance, the trial, he says, God, I am determined to praise you at all times. Tomorrow is Labor Day and growing up in Chicago, There was a rule. You can't wear white after Labor Day. It's unseasonable. But when it comes to our praising of God, there is never an unseasonable day. David says, I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Meaning that this isn't some sort of inward expression. It's an outward expression. It's not just in my heart. It's on my lips because I'm sharing it with those around me. David is saying, because I have tasted his goodness, because I have drunk deeply from the well of his love and kindness to me, I always have a reason for which I ought to bless his name, not only in my heart, but also with my tongue. And I do it so that others may hear because this conviction is contagious. And my hope is that as I declare the sweetness and beauty of Christ and my experience with him, my intimacy with him, that his praise will not only be on my lips, but on the lips of others who have shared in what I have tasted. Verse two, David says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. You were made to boast. Boasting is not a product of the fall. The fall skewed and distorted boasting. Jeremiah 9. Let not the strong man boast in his strength, nor the wise man in his wisdom, nor the rich man in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and what? Knows me. And David says, the humble will hear it and rejoice. There is one type of boasting that is not repugnant to the humble. And that is the boasting in the goodness of God. The humble person can hear the boasting of the character of God, his attributes, his providence, his leading, his direction, and also rejoice. The most humble people you know cannot tolerate hearing other people 
self-platform. But when the humble person hears someone else platform the goodness of God, they don't just listen. They share in the rejoicing. Verse 3, David says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name forever and together, he says. David is saying, I cannot do this alone. God is so worthy of the praise and so worthy of honor that I cannot do this as a one-man band. A symphony is needed. A choir is commanded. He's saying, you and you and you and you, come magnify the Lord with me. You know, it's interesting. We have to force times almost sometimes as Christians to say, hey, find someone, tell them something God's done in your life. And we're like, hey, I guess this. David has tasted the goodness of God to such a degree where he's not waiting for an opportunity. He's creating the opportunity. Hey, you, you, stop what you're doing. And I don't want to just acknowledge and affirm and agree that God is good. I want to magnify his name. I want to lift up his name. God is already supremely exalted and his sovereignty rules over all things, but I want to make his name known. And I want his prominence and his power and his goodness and his love to have the highest seat in your affections. Verse 11. He says, come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He's saying, I want to tell even the kids. I'm not above them. I'm, I'm the most powerful man in Israel. But declaring God's goodness, it's not something that I'm going to relegate to the other leaders only. What's your name, five-year-old? Let me tell you something. Your God is so good. Let me tell you why. Verse 13, it's going to have an effect on the way we use our tongue. Keep your tongues from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Those who have experienced God's goodness, they express it. And you know what? If you gave a hearty amen, meaning I agree that God is good, you're a sharer of that goodness and you do not privatize it. Third and finally here, David testifies to the assurance of God's goodness, the experience, the expression, and the assurance of God's goodness in verses 15 through the rest of the psalm. Sometimes we believe God's goodness or that he is good, but when our circumstances are are favorable, but God's goodness is not dictated by our circumstances. His goodness is anchored in his character. And David knows that God cares for him because he is a child of God. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. David acknowledges that God's omnipresence doesn't mean that he's just hovering over the surface of his creation, just mildly aware of what's happening. God's eyes are on his own like a loving parent. And David finds great comfort in this in the midst of isolation and loneliness and despair that that God doesn't need a report that comes up to him that tells him what's going on in my life. He's watching me like a father. I'm one of seven. Some of you know this. And we're all within nine years. So there's a lot of running around, a lot of stitches. But 
I remember even watching my mom, and now I have an older sister who's got five little babies. And a mom watches her kids like what? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Okay, Christine, Kyle, Johnny, Lissy, Emmy, Lindsay, Lauren, got them. And that's the type of way that God watches his child. It's not just because it's his duty, which it's not. He has no duty. It's because he loves them. And a mom watches after her child. A father watches after his family, not just because it's his responsibility, but because he loves his child. And David says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. Here's that word again, that God hears our cry. Look at verse 16 and 17. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now watch this. Watch this. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. When you go pick up your baby at the nursery after church, sometimes you don't always see them first, but sometimes you what? Hear them first. And a symphony of tears, you know which baby's cry is your baby. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears. He knows your voice. He knows us. He knows us. And David is saying that God looks upon me not in the sense where he just gets highlight reels of my successes and failures. No, God watchfully, carefully looks upon his children in love in tenderness and with compassion. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God's omniscience and presence is the dread of those who resist and reject him. But God's omniscience and presence is the greatest comfort to those who are in him. This is why David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. David is saying, the eyes of the Lord are on me and he is near to me. He saves the crushed in spirit. Are you brokenhearted today? Have you been crushed in spirit? Have you been ganged up on? David says, God knows and God cares. He watches and he cares. But not only does God care in verses 19 and 20, he preserves. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them shall be broken. David is reflecting reflecting on his own experiences, but that experience is launching us into the future because we would be sticking our heads in the sand to not think that no one that knew God had their bones broken. So what is David saying? Well, this is one of the times in the Psalms where David reaches beyond the experience of any believer. David was a warrior, understand he had seen thousands upon thousands of people dead on the field of battle he was a mighty warrior so does so what does david speak of then well apart from verse 8 these words in verse 20 if you know the new testament they are the ones that are likely most familiar to you and you know to whom they refer you know that it says in john that during the crucifixion of Jesus, they used to go up and break the legs of those who were being crucified because it was taking long. And so the people on the cross, they would die of asphyxiation. But when they came to Jesus, he had already 
decided the moment of his death, so not a single bone of Jesus' body was ever broken. There's a thread in the scripture, and there's a thread in the psalm that if we pull and pull and pull, that we will be absolutely convinced of the goodness of God in every situation, not just because God saw David through a crisis, but because when Jesus was dying on the cross, we know that in those hours when not a bone of his was broken, we can look at that testimony of his demonstrated love and be absolutely convinced and assured of the goodness of God. It's of this Paul speaks at the end of Romans 8. We love these words and we know these words. We know that in all things, God works for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How how do we know that? How, How do we know that God is working all things together for good? It's often the answers are in the following verse or in the context. Because he did not spare his only son, And if he didn't spare his son, and if he has given us everything we need in Christ, then we can be sure that whatever the darkness, whatever the difficulty, whatever the distress, if he has given us his son, he will stop at nothing to prove to us that he is absolutely good. We might pray, but Father, how can I know that you are good? And the living and active word of God responds to us and says, my son, my daughter, I gave my one and only son for you and I will withhold no good thing from you. I've given you the strongest, most credible testimony of my goodness. So trust me, trust my son, find deep assurance in my goodness. I find no thrill in the ambiguity that you may feel about my goodness and my love. In our hearts, no matter how sad or distressed, we can turn to him and say, Father, that's all the proof we will ever need that you are a good and loving and kind God. I want to taste and see that even more. Do you believe in your heart that he is good? You can only say that if you know that he did not spare his only son and that he does not want you to merely affirm and agree that he is good. He wants you to taste and see that he is good. And we do that as we run to his word. And when we run to his word, what happens is even as we read in Romans 5, the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts so that we can know that the love of God is not some sort of pragmatic strategy to attract the isolated to the people of God. It is the declaration and the demonstration of God himself. And if you believe in your heart that he is good and you have assurance of that goodness, you've experienced it, then can you help but express that to those around you? I, I'm talking Bible studies on Friday and Mark was talking about our leadership meetings. I'm so thankful we have visitors here. Those Bible studies that we have, I hope are the lowest hanging fruit to get your neighbors, people you don't know, And sometimes invitations are unique, but how do you invite someone? I want to tell you what God's done in my life. And I want you to know this God. I want you to know his people because I've tasted and seen his goodness. 
and I don't want to eat this meal alone. Can I pray for you? God, we love you and we are so thankful that you are a good God. We're so thankful for your precious truth that in a world of lies, confusion, ambiguity, and obscurity, we have the infallible, perfect, sufficient, clear, authoritative word of God. And Lord, as we read the scripture, we rely and we pray with the psalmist, open our eyes, O God, that we may, be, we may see the wonderful things that are within your word. And as we see the wonderful things that are within your word, we will be able to say with the psalmist, oh, this goodness is not just something I affirm, it is something I've tasted and something I've experienced. And Lord, to those who have experienced your goodness, would you give them the conviction, would you give them the strength, the boldness to say to others, come you children, come you neighbors, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I will show you who God is. Come magnify the name of the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed.